Well, hello and welcome to Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. I'm your co-host, Russ. And I am your co-host, Mike. It's been a busy week at Adult Music. But I'm feeling all chilled out now with my brandy here. <laughs> feeling good. It's going to be another good episode. We're recording on Sunday night as usual, but we're also recording Saturday morning this week because we got an interview coming up for you all, and that's with the drummer-composer Tony Addison. Yeah, the great Tony Addison, I'm going to say now, because right. it was a great interview. He was a good talker. He really uh, had a lot to say. We featured his debut jazz recording, Relentless Pursuit, on Odradek Records a couple episodes back, episode 132, Debuts and Discoveries. We got a chance to have an interview with him, and it was a lot of fun. It's going to be around 90 minutes. I'm going to do my best to get that edited and up this week, hopefully on Thursday. And when the interview was over, we hung out for almost another hour and <laughs> no, talked and listened to all kinds of music. We probably should have recorded that, too, because there was some good, yeah, it was a good time there. But yeah, we had cut the microphones off by then with the tape anyway, but it was good. We got a lot of insight into how he composes and his career, and he's a super nice guy, really yeah. enthusiastic. Really enthusiastic. That was great, yeah. I think everyone will enjoy that a lot, so stay tuned this week. That will be coming up. In other news... Well, a couple episodes back, we featured the same difference guys, AJ and Johnny, right. on our uh, show, and we had some fun uh, knocking about standard versions, right. and we're already working on going on as guests on their podcast, and that's in the works. We've got uh, a standard picked out, too. We'll keep that secret. Yeah, we can't say what that is. But hopefully that'll be coming up, and we'll get over on their channel and have some fun there before the end of the year, maybe mm -hmm. next month sometime. So we've got that coming up as well. And tonight, as always, we've got a bunch of interesting music, a variety of nationalities and styles in classical music. In jazz, I've got all sax music lined up for you. And some nationalities there, too. And we do have that in jazz as well. As always, in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music that we're going to discuss. And at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist where you can get all the music in one place on Deezer. CD quality streaming music from France. You can listen to the podcast there as well if you want to get everything in one place. Now, if you don't see the full description or recording list or the links aren't active on whatever app you listen to us on, you can always come over and check us out on Podbean, our host site. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to follow there. If you enjoyed the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. Tell a music-loving friend as well and take a moment to give us a ranking or write a review. That helps us get listed in the recommendations in the music categories. Please do come follow us on our Facebook page as well. You can get extra info during the week and get some new release information day by day as we find good releases. Leave a message or comment there. And if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions by email, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And I have to say, hmm. last week we had the greatest response ever from the artists that we featured. Virtually everyone yeah. got in touch with us after we let them know, and they were all very, very gracious. And especially we'd like to send some thanks out to Leslie Harrison. Yeah, and enthusiastic too. She was great too, Leslie yeah. Harrison. Yeah. She shared our episode, as well as we finally heard from George Contraforis. Yeah, we've been trying to get in touch with him for a long time. And Laurent Mont, the harmonicist on his recording, also shared our episode. Yeah. And we heard from Alex Norris, great trumpeter. Mm. And he shared the episode as well. Oh, we heard from Mr. Bornstein. Yeah, Nimrod Bornstein. Not only that, and the pianist too, Tron Nguyen, also wrote to us. 
Wow, that was uh, really exciting to get that much feedback. Yeah, we were pretty busy answering all those emails. It was really fun just talking to them. Yeah. They, had, they had a lot to say. And everyone was uh, really enthusiastic, which makes us feel good and you know get more awareness for all this great music that's out there. There's something about, too, communicating with the musicians that kind of gets you more interested in, in their music, you know, because they kind of talk about it and then you kind of get a clearer idea of what it's about and that sort of thing. So it's always right. good to do that. Like in the interview that we just did with Mr. Addison, yeah. <laughs> um, he, he kind of gave us a lot of uh, insight into his um, creative process. And I was like yeah. listening to the record again. I was like, oh, this is really interesting. Yeah, it was really yeah. interesting. And as we mentioned, the same difference to Jazz Fans One Jazz Standard podcast, you'll find a link for their show in the description too. Do check them out because they go through a lot of jazz history and play different versions that you may not have heard of old jazz classic tunes. And also at the end of our show, there'll be a little audio promo from them. You can hear their voices and a little introduction to what they do. And tonight we're going to also be sharing sound clips as we've gotten the habit of doing here. So before we roll into the music, for all concerned, here's our fair use disclaimer. The music sample clips are for commentary and educational purposes. We recommend that listeners listen to the complete recordings, all of which are available on streaming services in the links provided. And we also suggest that if you enjoy the music, you consider purchasing the CDs or high quality downloads to support the artists. As I said last week, our new motto is... Be like me, buy the CD. Except for this year, of course, because I can't afford CDs with the very weak yen. So. Right. <laughs> Hopefully that'll turn around and we can build up our collections again soon. Okay, so, yeah, okay, let's go get into the classical Should music. Should we go for, the, for Baroque? Oh, God. <laughs> I guess we would. <laughs> I had another, another joke about that, but I can't remember it now. Maybe I shouldn't be drinking the uh, brandy for the uh, podcast here. I can't really remember anybody's name or any of this stuff. Thankfully, I have notes. Anyway, we're kind of starting out in the Baroque, and I've got some uh, good Baroque material coming up in the upcoming weeks, So, oh, which great. is always kind of a happy thing, because I kind of tend to like to go Baroque, and then kind of like the classical slash romantic slash modernist period, and then something contemporary, ideally, but I can't always right. do that. So, you know, and plus, you like to break it up occasionally, too. Anyway, this week it's Baroque, and uh, this is an album. We're going to hear our second album in a month, on the Baroque guitar. This is, you know, when it rains, it pours. Suddenly, mm. we never featured a record with the Baroque guitar before, and now there, suddenly there are two. And this is um, called L'Amson, Henri Granerin, Suite Française. And that's uh, by Bruno Hellstroffer on the Baroque guitar. And this is released on the Alpha label. Okay, now the composer in question is Henri Granerin, and I think this is the first album ever made of his music, so we're here, we're discovering a lot of new composers as well from the past. Actually, this has been, I could go off on this a little bit, but I'm not going to do it now. This has been the case this year. There was um, the Gramophone Awards just um, announced their uh, winners for the best CDs in every category, and there's a new, um, a new old uh, Renaissance-era composer that uh, won the award this year. Now there are other albums of his music coming up. I'm not going to mention who it is because I don't want to confuse people, but you can look that up. So it's pretty interesting. And here we yeah. have uh, yet another one, Henri Granerin. He was French, of course. And let me just get into the title of this album, L'âme Son. It literally means soul sound. And you could translate that as music of the soul, I guess. Also, the notes say it's a pun on the word um, amson, which means fish hooks. And the reason for that is the Granerin Brocard family background consisted of a fisherman on his mother's side, I think his grandfather. Granerin's grandfather was a fisherman, so you have that little 
fish hook joke in there too in okay. that title. That's a pretty deep joke only mm. for, for fanatics only, I think. Anyway, Grunneron's father was a city stonemason. So there's a stonemason and a fisherman in his family. And then he was a composer. Anyway, so we heard an album of works uh, by for Baroque guitar and various instruments called 1790, The Music of Monsieur Vidal, played by Pascal Valois on September 18th. And he very graciously also wrote back to us uh, and told us a little bit about the instrument and the technique required to play it, which is pretty interesting. Right. This made me interested in the Baroque guitar, of course, and uh, since he did write back to us and that uh, kind of drew my attention. And then this album came out, and I said, wow, this is uh, When It Rains It Pours, as I said at the beginning, and I had to hear this too, so I figured I'd feature it here. This um, also focuses on music by a single composer, although there are two vocal tracks to break it up, and these are by different composers. We only get suites by Gunnar on here. All of the works are for solo Baroque guitar this time, unlike on the uh, Monsieur Vidal album, which where we had a concerto, the first guitar concerto right. ever written as far as we know, and uh, some chamber works. Here we get to hear the um, Baroque guitar all the way through with two breaks, which will be indicated when they come up. So we get to focus on that instrument. Anyway, Henri Conneran was one of a number of guitarists who would go on to invent a new method of playing the guitar by applying the formal experiments of court lutenists, another instrument that I really enjoy hearing, it's very intimate, to what was essentially a street instrument at the time, the uh, guitar. He made a virtue of the guitar's asymmetrical tuning, expanding the use of campanella, which I guess would be bell effects, and arpeggios to approach the sfumato, cultivated by lutenists. Sfumato means shading or kind mm. of haziness cultivated by lutenists in the Baroque style. I have notes here, and my uh, spell check has changed the word Baroque to broken. Oh. <laughs> Interestingly enough, so <laughs> referring back to your joke at the beginning. But lutenists got through, huh? Lutenists got through, yeah. What, mm. what, do you, what do you think that would have? I don't know. Gluten, maybe. Gluten? No, <laughs> who knows? The glutenists. <laughs> They're coming for us. Anyway. In Eric Orsena's book, I, I don't know about this book, I haven't read it, but um, it's called History of the World in Nine Guitars. Conneron has a place alongside Django Reinhardt and Jimi Hendrix wow. as a guitar hero. Amazing. So guitarists uh, who admire the playing of Django Reinhardt and Jimi Hendrix might want to listen to this album and try to imagine what Henri yeah. Conneron, the magic he would have created back in his Baroque era via the playing of Bruno Hellstroffer here. Sounds like an interesting book. I actually looked it up. It looks like it's out of print, but I, oh. you know, it looks like it'd be an interesting read. Anyway, the instrument that Bruno Hellstroffer plays on this album is a real beauty. You can see a photograph of him playing it on the album cover. I would advise you to check that out. It's a really nice looking instrument. So here at Adult Music, let's be among the first to introduce this guitarist and recording and composer to the world, as Hellstroffer already did, but uh, we'll pass the word on. We start with tracks one through seven, Suite en La Mineur, which is A minor. The first movement of the suite is a prelude in Milare Tiers Mineur. I don't know what the Milare part is here, but it starts with a lovely arpeggio. The arpeggio really bursts out of the instrument. It just makes like this immediate statement. And one reason for that is because this performance is recorded extremely closely, as yeah. was, incidentally, the... Um, Monsieur, um, I keep confusing Valois with a Vidal here because they both start with V. The Monsieur Vidal recording. That was also a very close recording. And I'm wondering what it is about this instrument that's making the engineers put the microphone right up to the instrument. I'd like to get more of an idea of 
just how loud this instrument is. It, I imagine it's much quieter than a modern guitar. Yeah, it does have a very tiny body. Yeah, but I still like to hear it kind of in its natural sort of form. We got an idea of it on the Monsieur Vidal album when we heard the uh, the chamber works right. with the violin, So because the violin kind of came through in its ordinary tone. This is recorded so closely that you can actually hear the instrument creaking when he moves his hand on it. <laughs> You could turn the um, volume down. You'll still hear the uh, guitar in its beautiful tone, you know, very clearly. And the squeaks just sound kind of um, part of the recording. You you know, you still notice them, but they don't really um, interfere with the playing by any means. I mean, and you do get a full um, feeling for the beautiful tone. Let me just play the opening of this opening track, and you'll hear this just sound just burst out of the instrument. Here we go. You can hear those squeaks uh, pretty clearly, can't you? Yeah, beautiful recording, very spacious, and I really love this kind of playing. It really kind of puts you in a a place that modern society is really incapable of putting you in in general. <laughs> so it's a good recording uh, for that as well. The performance itself, as you heard, is very sensitive, and I think I would have enjoyed this more if the recording wasn't quite so close and full body. Although, as I said, you could just turn the volume down. The Baroque guitar, I think, should sound thinner than a modern classical guitar. But here, it's it's very thick and full-sounding. I can hear Hostroffer's beautiful tone clearly. He has virtually no finger squeaks, but the instrument does kind of creak, I think, when he kind of shifts position on it. Anyway, the second movement is an allemande, and it starts much like the prelude, um, with the upbeat followed by a chord. Uh, there are some nice, quick hammer-on pull-off effects in this movement, uh, providing some quick winding passages. They're executed brilliantly, and the Baroque guitar is, like the lute, an instrument that puts sensitivity across extremely well, and Hellstroffer does just that. When I hear lute recordings, I'm always kind of amazed at how much more intimate it is than the, the modern guitar, although the modern guitar is very intimate as well. The lute, though, is very formal sounding because it has all those, the voicings are all very kind of strictly uh, carried out. We're not quite going to hear that here, although what you just heard in that first track is very lute-like, I think. But we'll get away from that, too. The third movement, Courant, is at about the same speed and is equally sensitive to all we've heard so far. A Courant usually is pretty fast, but uh, not in this case. All the movements are very pretty and melodically appealing, and this sounds rather courtly like lute music. One of the things about this album that's interesting is that the music is going to get more sort of advanced, let's say, as the uh, album goes on. So we kind of start in a very courtly manner here. Yeah, it starts out relatively simple. When I yeah. heard the first few pieces, I was thinking, I could play these. And then <laughs> as it goes on, it subtly gets, starts to get into some really interesting and difficult sounding techniques. Right. Okay, fourth movement, Sarabande, very popular dance from the era. Always the centerpiece of a Baroque dance suite. This Sarabande is even slower than the first three movements, as it should be. Uh, with lots of space left between phrases. It needs to be sensitive and is here. Hellstroffer goes for a gentler attack in this piece, almost brushing the strings for chords while strongly plucking the melody. 
The piece has a hypnotic quality to it, also very appropriate for a sarabande. The fifth movement is a gigue, which is a fast dance, and we get a livelier movement for the first time on the album here in track five, with a light bounce in its step. This comes across well at the uh, close recording range. The tone is well picked up by the recording, and I like Hellstruffer's sensitive phrasing tapering off at the end of phrases. All right, the sixth movement. Now, this is really interesting. This is a menuet, and there are, I think, three or four menuets on this album, and they're all very strange. They're not, they don't sound like what we think of when we think of a menuet, if you're thinking of a menuet in the terms of like the way Haydn or Mozart wrote them. It's fairly lively here. It's got a nice hammer-on-pull-off figure in its opening theme, which gets repeated several times. Melodic discourse follows, all while the lively rhythm is maintained. And the piece ends after this uh, section. It doesn't have like the three parts, or maybe it did, but I just didn't notice. Not enough contrast there. But it's an odd-sounding menuet. It's not what you think of when you think of a menuet. The seventh and final movement is a bourré, which is a dance. The bourré is short and fairly quick, too. It's got a conversational melody over its marked rhythm, and it's appealing and an upbeat ending to the suite. We go right into another suite, tracks 8 through 14, Suite en Ré Majeur. This is D major. Movement 1, Prelude in D, La, Ré, Sol, Par, B, Carré, Ties, Majeur. This one starts with another burst of a chord, and again, this is very close, but I've turned the volume down now in my listening, and it's better, and I'd advise listeners to do the same. I should mention I listen to this in the house speakers, not in the headphones. Beautiful phrasing and lots of space to the playing. The second movement is an allemande en de la ré sol, and uh, this is a pretty piece with a bit of a lift in its rhythmic step. Mm. It's highly melodic, and its charm is brought out brilliantly by the performance, and I want to um, sample this one too. Yeah, I noticed a little bounce in this one as well. Yeah, I liked this one a lot, so I just want to give everybody a little sound of this. Here we go. complex there. Mm -hmm. So the next movement is a courant, and this has a nice 3-4 feel to it that gives the heartfelt melody a charming lilt. It's pretty brief, but very likable. The fourth movement, Pasakaya. Uh, these tend to be long, but this one clocks in at 2 minutes and 42 seconds, which I guess is long for this um, suite. All these movements are very brief. The rhythms in this suite are all on the lively side, very different than the other one. And I have to say, you might have noticed that uh, the Alamond is a lot brighter. That's because this is in a major key. And this seems to have made a huge difference in the way that um, Laron um, composes for the instrument. This sounds actually like a repeating section, but it's actually variations on a bass. The varied melodic lines are subtly different, though. It's a pretty interesting listen. The fifth movement, the Sarabande. A very spacious Sarabande. And I can hear the creaking noises are actually the closely recorded instrument here. I was kind of confused about that at the beginning. This is a stately movement, again, performed with maybe a slightly fast pace, but it comes across with the proper character. The sixth movement is a gigue, and this major key gigue comes across as rather lively in its rhythm, yet rather muted in expression due to the instrument. It's very pretty, and it's short. The seventh movement is a menuet, and oddly, this comes across in a more lively fashion than the gigue. Hmm. Granaran seems to have had an ear for the menuet, 
as this was the case in the previous A minor suite too. The melody is catchy, and towards the end of the rhythm, it's strummed on the instrument, a sound we haven't heard much of up to now. So this strumming would be more of the street style of the guitar, the plucking and the different kind of polyphonic lines or the um, you know arpeggiated chords would be more of a lute um, technique. So he's sort of blending the two techniques here, and this was um, revolutionary at the time. And putting him in Django Reinhardt and Jimi Hendrix's class, I guess, according to the notes. <laughs> I'm building that up a bit, but decide for yourself. Track 15, we get a little break. Antoine Busset, Je meurs sans mourir. I die without dying. <laughs> oh. I'm 58 now. I know what that feels like. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is um, has vocals by a soprano that I really like a lot, Chantal Santon Jeffery. I've got to say... I may have had the uh, volume turned up too loudly for the previous works because Chantal Santangeferi's voice came bursting out of the speaker at a loud volume. I had to turn it down. So it's a lovely voice that I've heard on many other recordings, including one of French Baroque opera arias with the spectacular title, Brillet Astre Nouveau. <laughs> Shine. <laughs> Bright, I guess, Astre be star, shooting stars or something. I don't know. That was released in 2020 on the Aparte label, and I urge you to hear it if you like Baroque singing or Baroque opera. It's, it's a great program, and it really is well sort of programmed as well. On this track, Chantal Santon Jeffery is in lament mode, singing a text that's meant for a man, but no matter, it happens all the time in opera especially. Her vocals match well with a gentle Baroque guitar. The overly sensitive recording captures every nuance of her voice, showing her to have excellent vocal control. It's a lovely performance. All right, we go back to Henri Gonaran, Suite en Sol Mineur. Another minor key, this is G minor. First movement, Allemande, en G, Ré, Sol, Ut, Tierce, Mineur. Okay. So, now that... I've had that um, vocal work to um, adjust my volume. I'm, I guess at this point I started getting a more accurate uh, idea of what the instrument sounded like. Uh, the guitar is registering well and much more quietly. This gently played uh, performance comes across with great sensitivity. I think a lot of the expression is in the space that's left in the pauses between notes played by the quickly decaying tone of this instrument. The second movement is a courant played only slightly faster than the Allemande. And this also has an introspective tone. We're back in the minor key here, after all. We go right to a Sarabande in um, movement three. That would be track 18 for those who want to sample. This Sarabande comes across again as stately with some gently pleading high notes in the melody. Listen for them. They're really beautiful. In fact, I should give a sample of this, at least one of these uh, Sarabandes, and this one is a good one, so let's do that. Got to the cadence that time. Fantastic. Perfect timing. <laughs> Fourth movement, Gigue à la manière angloise. This has a bit of uh, the sea shanty feel to it that we often hear in jigs. In 3-4, as a jig should be. It's sort of like a rocking like a boat in the rhythm here, and it's very short. 
The fifth movement is the menuet, and this is another intriguing menuet melody, which really doesn't put me in mind of what I've come to think of as a menuet, as I said before. It's brief, fast, and lively. I've mentioned throughout how the menuets are striking my ear as rather unusual in their rhythm and pace, and since this is the last menuet on the album, I'm going to have to sample this one. that almost like strummed you know, yeah. chords there. They're not arpeggiated as they would be on a lute. But um, yeah, it's a little unusual sounding for a menuet. I really enjoy them. All three of them are really interesting on this album. Anyway, the sixth movement, this is track 21, is a uh, pasakaya, and it's a melody with two-part phrases, one open-ended, the next resolving. It moves rather freely over the bass line, going into the higher end of the instrument. All right, we move on to the next uh, piece, which is another... Um, vocal work featuring the soprano uh, Chantal Santon Geoffroy. This is by Jean de Camberfort, or at least it's attributed to him. We don't really know who wrote it. And it's called Troisième Partie du Ballet Royal de la Nuit Récit de la Lune. I guess it's um, Récit de la Lune, you know, what the moon said. Anyway, this was sung for the first time in 1653 with the young Louis XIV taking the role of the sun. I guess it was a stage sort of um, work. Hmm a theater work, and was very probably accompanied by Henri Granarin himself. I personally find it rather funny to hear a woman singing the words, I whose frigid coldness is well known. I mean, she's the moon, so that's why, <laughs> she, that's why she's saying that. But um, anyway, this is the adult music podcast, so <laughs> that's acceptable here. <laughs> I'll be an adult and say once again, Chantal Saint-Angéphrey delivers a fine, clear voice performance. This is a beautiful voice, even when it's as closely recorded as it is here. There are no real flaws in this voice. When you put the mic that close to a, a singer, you're going to hear every defect in the voice, and we're not hearing any here. This is a really good singer with a great technique. The guitar sounds commendably in the distance, but it's recording as it has been throughout the recording, and the two vocal breaks are welcome distractions from the solo guitar music, which is all great, but it's just nice to have like a little pause so you can kind of regather your thoughts. Uh, for the next suite. And the um, final suite on the album is tracks 23 through 28, Suite en Ré mineur, which is D minor. So we get another minor suite. This one doesn't have a menuet in it, though. The first track, Prelude en De la Ré Sol Tierce Mineur, has a gentle opening. It's a rather introspective, gently played minor key prelude. It's a bit exploratory, landing on new keys at the end of phrases. The second movement, Allemande starts and proceeds like a typical Allemande. I did like the gently brushed chord at the end of the opening section at the cadence. You hear it again at 113. The B section follows. The music proceeds in a dotted rhythm, giving it a bit of a rhythmic push. The third movement is the Sarabande, and this comes before the courant here, unusually. It's got short phrases, uh, lots of creaks in this piece, mostly due to the spaciousness of the piece. There's a nice sensitivity to the playing of this piece, a comment I've made throughout the album. 
We then hear the fourth movement, the courant. This courant has a bit of liveliness to its rhythm and departs a bit from the lute style I've been hearing in the earlier courants. There's a bit more of a guitar quality to this, especially in its strumming. The fifth movement is another sarabans. We get two sarabans in the same suite, also unusual. This one has less space in the pauses than the earlier one, yet that stately quality is still present. This is a little different, and I'm guessing we're hearing more of the techniques associated with the guitar on this sarabande, more chords and harmonized melodies. And the sixth movement is called Gigue Aimable, which means lovable jig. <laughs> it doesn't have the dance quality we generally associate with jigs, but it's in 3-4 and progresses in quick two-note patterns, followed by a pause. The final track on the album is a Pasakaya en si sol ut fa. This is probably the most advanced piece on the... Um, album and the one I like the most really it has very much has a guitar quality to it with its strummed chords and picked out melodic notes it's a fairly long pasakaya for this album at 4 minutes and 52 seconds and proceeds with a bit of a dotted note bounce to the rhythm when the strummed rhythm comes in it picks up the dotted rhythm as well Pasakaya variations are gently and subtly led into, and you hardly notice the change, but you realize you're hearing something slightly different somewhere in the melodic material as it goes on. Subtle performance here is by Hellstroffer, and really throughout the album. This is a lightly cheerful ending to this album of subtle moods. I'll have to try waking up to this one in the morning. Uh, it sounds like it, it puts you in the right place to have a really good day. It's a great ending to the album, and it's got a real smile to it. Anyway... You might have noticed I got more acclimated to what was happening in the music as the recording went on. The hybrid of lute and guitar styles in the music is subtle, especially at first, and it took a while for my brain to process. In fact, it almost sounds like there's a metamorphosis from the lute to more like a more guitar-like uh, playing with strumming as the album goes on. It sort of changes from one to the other gradually. It's very interesting to listen to all the way through. I'd advise listeners for maximum enjoyment to keep the volume down. In fact, you should probably go right to track 15 and adjust the volume according to the vocal, and then go to track 1 and listen to the album straight through. The Baroque guitar is recorded very close to the mic, and finger squeaks and instrument creaks are highly audible. At a low volume, they're minimal and not distracting. But I should talk about the performances here. The music of this, new to me, and to recordings, composer, is sensitively played here and really couldn't ask for better performances than those given here by Bruno Hellstroffer. To my ear, most of this music is formally, well, the beginning, the music in the beginning is formally lute-like in the way it's laid out, but there are less formal elements to be heard from time to time within movements and really as the album goes on. I singled out the minuets as being rather unusual. They're not as spacious as the other more courtly-sounding Baroque dance movements, and caught my ear each time. Fans of the guitar would really need to hear this, as well as anyone interested in the Baroque. Henri Granarin's music is a byway of Baroque music that could stand to become more mainstream. It's an intriguing mix of strumming and fast ornamental kind of figures that start to become a unique style as you get used to hearing it. Also, the material here is a mix of meditative pieces and some with more dancey but reserved motion due to the tempos. By the end of the recording, you can form a sense of a unified style of what had been developed with this music, of the various techniques that you'll get sort of used to hearing, and even a kind of developing new aesthetic that would shape guitar music. And I find it, you know, unique. I haven't heard anything quite like this before and very charming. All right. So now we're going to move on to 
three works that I just love. Some of the some of my favorite classical works of all time. The three Bartok piano concertos. Here, they're played by a pianist I really love too, Pierre Laurent Aymar on the piano, with the San Francisco Symphony conducted by Esa Pica Salonen. I won't even say accompanying because they're they have a lot of great parts yeah. themselves. Yeah, they're of equal interest. This is on the Pentatone label. All right, so we just get the three uh, piano concertos here, and I've been listening to these since I was in my 20s, so I know them pretty well. I should mention my favorite recording of these works is by Andras Schiff with the Budapest National Festival Orchestra conducted by um, Yvonne Fischer, which came out in, I think, uh, 1998, six? I don't mm. remember, but it was a long time ago. I'm going to have something more to say about that later. Anyway, let's start right away. Piano Concerto Number 1 in A Major, SC83. This one was uh, composed in 1926. These are all three-movement works, and the first movement is marked Allegro Monterato, moving to Allegro. This is a piece that's trying to emphasize the fact that the piano is a percussion instrument. Throughout the uh, Romantic era, the piano was used... It was kind of disguised as a legato instrument due to like the techniques that Chopin and composers like him developed for the piano. Like it, They tried to make it sing, and it does. The piano sings beautifully. But when you hit the key, the sound um, deteriorates, and it hammers strike strings, so it's really like a percussion instrument. And Bartok is really emphasizing that in this piece. This is a real modernist work in that way. So the piano and timpani pounding at the beginning is really emphasized by what I believe is a euphonium in the right channel when you hear this. There's great presence to the orchestra and great detail on the recording, and that's really welcome because the orchestra has some really fantastic parts. In fact, the piano sounds like it could be a bit more upfront, uh, considering the volume of the percussive instruments of the orchestra. Imad plays this at a slightly slow speed, and Salonen takes the opportunity to make sure we hear the echoes of the piano's lines in the orchestra. The orchestration of this piece has a lot of spice, and all of the detail comes up beautifully. I'm going to play the opening to this because it's just fantastic. Now, you pay attention especially to the, the way the uh, percussion imitates the piano and uh, indicates that it is in its true family in percussion instruments. Here we go. Oh, that fantastic brass, too. Mm -hmm. huh? Wow. It's really um, very vivid. And it's also a bit stately at this speed. It's, it's kind of slow, slower than the other um, recordings I've heard. The orchestration of this piece has a lot of spice to it, as you heard. I think you heard that you know, sort of euphonium in the right channel there. And all the detail comes up beautifully. In the, uh, the section beginning at around the two-minute mark, uh, which is more melodic, Amar seems to speed up a bit. He's really emphasizing the percussive nature of this piece, as he should. The more modernist elements are heavily brought out, as heard in the often spicy harmony and clusters of notes. If you find yourself lost, think, what is the rhythm doing? That's what you really want to be listening to. It's the percussive sounds that drive the movement and the piece. 
Imad plays the chords at the 4 minutes and 55 seconds as a line of shapes. And he's going for something more on the intellectual side here, I would say. I would say, listen, also at the 5 minute and 28 second mark, where rather than the melody, we're hearing something more like the shape of the rhythm in the piano. Generally, I like this movement to sound more aggressive, to have more forward movement and momentum to it. But the entire sound and lines of sound in this movement are making me hear it differently. I'm very happy with this, in fact. This really chest cavity pleasing bass drum on the very last chord. All right, the second movement, Andante, and then there's a, it attaches to the third movement. This is, um, features Bartok's symmetry of phrasing. This is kind of an arched formed movement. Uh, the soft uh, beguiling sounds at the beginning register on the ear like wafting pungent perfumes of sound. Amar gives a sense of statement to his highly spiced chords at a minute and 30 seconds. In the second minute, I'm really enjoying the clarity of the light percussion timbres. They sound like they're live in the room. I love the snake-like way the orchestra takes with the lower winds in the third minute into the fourth minute. They're satisfyingly up close in the sound and make an exotic impression as the piano pounds mezzo forte clustered chords in the lower end of the piano. The low winds are reminiscent of Stravinsky's winds in Petrushka when we're in the Moore's room. Gorgeous high wind harmonies are heard at the 5 minute and 30 second mark too, and the intro to the third movement starts in this movement or a little unusually, with the percussion registering strongly. Now, the third movement, when it really starts, is interesting. It doesn't explode from the slow movement with forward motion, as most performances do but rather sounds more like a motor that's been set to a specific speed, with the bass drum keeping the beat in the listener's ear and body, really throughout the movement. I'd like you to hear this, because um, if you know this work, you'll notice this. It's a little different than what we're used to. I'd like to uh, just give a sample here. Yeah, that rhythm sounds actually kind of ritualistic. Yeah. You know, hmm. As opposed to aggressive, which is how it's often played. And I like it the aggressive way. But this really interested me. I liked this um, as well. Details such as uh, gently played triangles register beautifully. The piano, as in the first movement, plays more in shapes than in goal-oriented lines. It's an interesting approach. The orchestral sounds are so interesting that I'm almost focusing more on them than the piano. And that's... Uh, saying nothing negative about Amar's uh, performance, which is absolutely spectacular. But the piano does draw attention to itself when required. Amar's playing of the lighter, quieter material in the fourth minute is beguiling, as is the fully dimensional gong that happens at the 4 minute 39 second mark. I love a gong, don't you? Oh, yeah. You can hear a great one in the 4 minute 39 second mark. The piano has some sparkling material in this movement, and Amar provides that sparkle at 5 minutes and 30 seconds and in other places. The ending comes with a huge bass drum thud and an unaggressively played final chord in keeping with the rest of the interpretation. Now, when I say unaggressive, that's been the uh, way the movement has been played, and it works very well here. 
it's I don't want to say unique, but it's um, an approach to this um, movement or to this work that we haven't heard in a long time. So um, well worth hearing. It's a slightly different um, interpretation than you're used to hearing, and that's always good, especially when it works as it does here. Okay, the second piano concerto, I think, is inspired a bit by um, Baroque music. Now, in Baroque music, we heard a lot of um, uh, brass that got solo lines in the orchestra, and that uh, sort of disappeared after the once uh, Mozart and Haydn came around. They would give sort of brass instruments. If they weren't solo instruments, they'd sort of be providing texture in the score, and that was really true even throughout the 19th century with Wagner's um, sort of brass sort of providing this sort of creamy Wagnerian-type harmony in his operas, famous as they were. So in the 20th century, brass came back, and uh, to make it sort of sound like a, um, a solo instrument or like a, you know, something that should be playing um, up front in the orchestra, Bartok really goes back to the Baroque. So this opening sounds very Baroque, as you will hear. Let's give this uh, opening of the second piano concerto a listen. Here we go. It's going off at a quick speed there, too. Mm. Yeah, some of those uh, chords are really spicy, too. I really just love that. Real uh, 20th century stuff. So the use of the brass and the constant movement of this concerto. Recall the Baroque era. Now, you heard the piano doesn't sound very Baroque, but what does sound Baroque is the the constant movement, the lack of space. There's almost like a perpetual motion quality to this movement. And the occasional polyphony as well. I love the detail that you just heard in the opening, presented via a lack of explosiveness to the beginning, though we get enough to make uh, the opening impact with the listener. The brass comes across well with their Baroque character at the 55-second mark, which we didn't get to, and the uh, detail of the piano's running lines afterward comes up well. Again, we hear a lot of the uh, music as shaped lines, solid strings of sound, the piano playing in this movement is incredible, really, easily noticed by the clarity of the recording. It's always incredible in every good performance, of course, but it's not being obscured here by the orchestra. I love the way the orchestral detail comes up so clearly, too. One can almost perceive what the conductor's score would look like as you're hearing all the sounds, because I think you're really hearing everything on the page. Mm. The piano sounds but doesn't impact on the recording. It's placed a bit away from the microphones, but is not recessed in any way. What beautiful strings of scales Amard executes at the 6 minute 9 second mark. Absolutely smooth, and we'll hear that again in the third piano concerto. At 6.42, we get a great polyphonic brass fanfare. I really just bask in the brass in this movement, and in really Bartok's works in general. Some of the most exciting brass writing in the entirety of classical music, I would say. The ending has a satisfyingly Baroque approach to the last chord. The second movement, Adagio, moving to presto and then più Adagio, starts with an example of what critics like to call Bartok's night music. And what that is, is uh, whenever you hear him use a smooth, quiet sounds of massed vibratoless strings. There's a great contrast with the previous movement. We finally hear the piano at the minute and 42nd mark. Amar never gets overly sensitive with his tone, focusing on the line always. 
He's more geometry than poetry here, as he has been throughout. I do like how ominous he makes his climbing lines sound in the lead-up to the fourth minute. The piano line reaches a peak of tension, and the night music just comes drifting back in. In the sixth minute, the playing really takes off, with the piano playing with amazing virtuosity, shaping the lines beautifully at high speed. Also, listen to the repeated notes after the 7 minute and 50 second mark. After a shrieking interruption by a muted trumpet, the piano plays a long and amazingly even trill. The piano gets a tolling bell effect in the 11th minute with its repeating ominous octaves, and then the, uh, the uh, movement just sort of dwindles away. We get to the third movement, Allegro Molto, and here there's liberal use of the bass drum at the beginning of this loudly recorded and highly impactful movement. The piano retains its distance and clear sound, while the orchestra seems to move forward on crescendos and really explode through the speakers. The brass are back playing canonic fanfares at a minute and 10 seconds. The piano picks up on some of the brass lines and plays them in octaves. There are quick changes of texture, usually brought on by a loud hit of the bass drum. We get a real roller coaster of a piano line after the 3 minute and 10 second mark. Let me sample that because it ends with a brass fanfare that's also pretty fantastic. love that bass drum at the yeah. end of that section. Th- that whole section is just such great writing. Did you hear the way the piano just suddenly becomes the brass? It just sort of, it's almost like somebody did a crossfade on a, on a mixing console or something. It's really just great writing. The early 20th century was an exciting time in music. I'm just marveling there at the finesse that Amar brings to his playing, especially in the very quiet yet fully even figuration at the 450 mark and afterwards. The brass come back to lead the Baroque-inspired concerto to its rousing end. I love the sparkle that Bartok gives to the final phrase before the last chord, and Amart executes it beautifully. All right, the third piano concerto is um, rather different. It's not as um, modernist. It kind of falls back into the Romantic era a bit. It was written at the end of Bartok's life for his wife, uh, because Bartok was dying. And he wrote this for his wife so that she, she was a professional pianist and um, she'd um, have some money to, to spend after he was gone by playing this piece. It's a little um, less complicated than the other two. And it's, it's really beautiful. Let me just play the, the opening really heartfelt melody from uh, Piano Concerto Number no. 3, First Movement. This is track 7.
I love Amar's uh, beautiful sense of phrasing in this particular passage as well. The piano now, you might notice, is uh, way up front. So um, this is a quieter, less explosive <laughs> concerto. So I think they moved the piano closer to the um, microphones here. I'm thinking that Amar took a unique approach to each individual concerto now that I've heard um, this particular opening too. The octaves are played in this uh, movement with a measured effect by Amar, a minute and 25 seconds. And afterwards, in other words, there's no real aggression to them. He's not really playing them as a groove, but sort of like where the beat falls. It's an approach he favors in a lot of moments in these three concertos. What I'm noticing is that the approach allows repeating melodic shapes and sequenced figures to leap out. And that's probably why I enjoyed these concertos so much. There was so much detail coming out, especially in the way that the orchestra will echo the piano and vice versa. The multi-voice piano lines at around the two-minute mark and after are an example of this. And note at the three-minute and 20-second mark that the piano's accompanimental figuration is way on top of the melody and the winds and the orchestra. It sounds really good, but it's a change from the previous two concertos. The orchestral lines in this movement are touchingly played. At the four-minute and 57-second mark, we hear the opening phrase again, harmonized in the piano this time. We get another chance to hear Amar's perfectly smooth arpeggios in an arch pattern in the sixth minute. Really, this reminds me of, um, if you remember the pianist Arturo Benedetti Michelangeli, he had amazingly smooth scales, and I'm hearing that from Amard as well. The movement ends rather with a hush. The second movement is labeled Adagio Religioso, and here string voices enter one by one in canonic fashion, played without vibrato and creating a solemn sound fitting for the tempo marking of the movement. The piano's entry at a minute and 20 seconds is deeply sensitive and solemn. The piano line goes on into chorale-like chords. At 4 minutes and 42 seconds, there's a departure from the solemn tone to something more mysterious and alert. At 5 minutes and 20 seconds, there's some appealing modal melodizing and some bird-like figures in the winds and piano. This section sort of dissipates with the piano becoming more active and complete in its lines and the orchestra providing gentle harmonic support. The gong at 9 minutes and 22 seconds, there's your next gong, uh, registers fully yet subtly, again drawing attention to how good this recording is. The movement ends in the middle of a phrase, almost like it's a dot 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 in a sentence, you know, like the thought is continuing but it's silent. The third movement, Allegro Vivace, takes us out of the reverie we've sunk into in the previous movement. Again, Amar goes for a measured approach in his octaves. There's a bass drum just before the first minute that, though quietly struck, impacts profoundly through the speakers. This movement, though lively, proceeds without aggression. The waltzing figures in this rhythm-changing movement glide gently and appealingly at the three-minute mark as a result. There's another more East European waltzing 3-4 theme just before the fourth minute. Some of the rhythmic changes that come after this lead to beguiling sounds and rhythmic figures in both piano and orchestra. I wish I could sample all of them for you. There's just so much orchestral magic and piano magic in this movement. The end has some rhythmic sleight of hand before the piano scale up the keyboard for the final strongly punctuated chord. By the way, Bartok died before he finished sort of orchestrating this work, and uh, he really died before he finished uh, the last three bars. So one of his students just had to, <laughs> I guess, fill in the last three bars. I mean, effectively, he wrote this. This isn't a, <laughs> it isn't as though it's an unfinished work. I mean, what we hear at the end is this piano scale up to the final chord and just the orchestration to the last chord. Anyway, there were so many things that stimulated me about these performances that I have to recommend it highly. I'll be listening to this a lot because I was so fascinated by the approach. 
And the, because the approach is unique, though, this isn't going to be my go-to performance. I think that's still Andra Schiff, who practically sings these works. He's surprisingly melodic in these really dense, sort of heavy-hitting 20th century works. I found these performances by Aymar hypnotic, and I really want to hear them again. And I just loved the recording so much. The San Francisco Symphony sounds fantastic on this recording, with rarely noticed details cleanly appearing out of the texture and always pleasing the ear. The percussion is explosive, and the brass have an impact. The piano itself, despite being the solo instrument, isn't as three-dimensional on the recording as the orchestra in the first two concertos, but is up front in the third, probably because the solo instrument is less explosive in this work. The performances are fantastic and well thought out. I've pointed out the unique approach by Amar and Salonen in the last movement of the first concerto. This is a recording leaning more towards the intellect, but with a lot of sensual pleasures as well. I found it beautiful in a lot of ways, and I'd urge you to hear it. Uh, get some paprika into your life. Some musical paprika. I thought these performances really bring out the different characters of each concerto. I have other recordings of all three of them, you know, on the same disc, but I never really noticed the outstanding differences as much as I did on this one. The first one's so percussive, number two is more dissonant, and the final one is peaceful but exciting. The piano playing is really confident sounding, and you can really enjoy the clear orchestral parts, and the energy in the performances made this recording the most fun I've had listening to these works ever. Wow. And that's from a man who likes the playing of Jean-Eflam Bavouzet, because he recorded these as well. Okay, our third recording in classical music is by a contemporary composer. I always try to get a contemporary composer in if I can. And today's uh, lucky winner is Stefan Hoika. Born in 1959, he's a German composer. And this is a uh, an album called uh, Holzbläser Sonaten, Opus 114. That would translate as Woodwind Sonatas. The artists are all individually named Daniela Koch on the flute, K-O-C-H. Us New Yorkers would say Koch because of Ed Koch, <laughs> the mayor. But I'm pretty sure this is going to be Koch in German. Ramon Ortega Cuero, oboe. Simon Degen Kolbe on the clarinet. Marceau Lefebvre on uh, bassoon. Kimiko Imani, oh, this is a familiar name, on the piano. Gute Ha on the piano, and Tobias Haunhorst on the piano. Now, there's going to be a different pianist on each uh, work, is why there are three of them. This is released by the GWK Records label, who I believe are based in Germany. Okay, so Hoike calls his musical language integrative tonal. And I could kind of tell what he means. These works were all published together as Hoike's Opus 114, and... They're each for um, a solo woodwind instrument and piano, starting with the flute and really going down the range of woodwind instruments. This is a, a pretty interesting thing to do because we don't really have all that many um, works for, you know, solo sonatas for these um, instruments with piano accompaniment or chamber works for these solo instruments, let's say. He's published them all as his Opus 114. Anyway, let's go through these and we'll just start talking about what I'm hearing because I couldn't really get too much information about this composer. The first work, tracks one through three, is his Flute Sonata, Opus 114, number one. The performers are Daniela Koch on the flute and Kimiko Imani on the piano. The first movement, Allegretto Grazioso, starts rather romantically with repeating chords in the piano and a curving line in the flute. The sound quality is very good. 
The piece is appealing and melodic. It's pretty light as far as any kind of harmony goes, but there are some kind of harmonic quirks to it. It darkens to something more mysterious at a minute and 15 seconds to what sounds like a traditional contrasting second theme. We hear the flute playing high up in its range here with no vibrato and close to piercing tone, though relatively mezzo piano. At 2 minutes and 32 seconds, there's a brief transition to the repeated chord texture of the beginning. With the flute leaping around its registers, the music slows at 4 minutes and 11 seconds, though still with that same repeated chord accompaniment in the piano, and the piece ends with a decrescendo and descent. Second movement, Minuetto Antico con Variazioni. I'm always kind of interested to hear something labeled Antico. There's something about the past that appeals to me. I like history, and I guess I like classical music because it's music of the past as well. Kind of gives me a little, shines a little light on that for me. So this has variations. The uh, theme has an appealing flute theme repeated by the piano with the flute and canon uh, when it comes back in. There's a quick variation first, then at the one minute mark we hear some mysterious chords with some flutter-tongued tone from the flute. This section deteriorates to a variation of arpeggios with rather freeing harmonic profile. The variation at 2 minutes and 35 seconds is rather song-like and features mainly the flute with spacious piano accompaniment. At 3 minutes and 55 seconds, there's a very sparsely played variation with the flute in its highest range. And I'm wondering if that bang heard at around 4 minutes and 50 seconds is in the score or if somebody simply dropped something. <laughs> I should have gone back with the <laughs> headphones and listened. Anyway, this proceeds in the lurching two-note patterns with the piano really rumbling out thunderous chords in the bass end. We get a more floating flute melody accompanied by repeating quarter-note chords in 3-4 time. At 6 minutes and 19 seconds, there's a breathy staccato theme in the flute, as the piano accompanies staccato as well. This particular variation is brief but enjoyable. Next, at 6 minutes and 50 seconds, we have patterns emerging from the bass end of the piano and ending in the flute's melody. A more tranquil variation starts at 7 minutes and 36 seconds, the flute playing quietly over quiet, deep bass pattern in the piano. The third movement is a rondo, uh, marked allegro brioso. This has a breathy, fizzy melody in the flute with the piano accompanying lightly, and I think this is uh, worth a sample, so I want to give listeners a sample of this. And it goes on. So the flute, uh, the flautist there is really uh, being uh, put through her paces, let's say. Serious virtuosity in the flute line there. The breathy tone is appealing and the material catchy. And you can hear it's really very romantic in style here. At the 2 minute and 10 seconds, there's a departure to some heavy piano chords in the bass. A contrasting legato played in the harp. The breathy staccato material returns in the third minute. At the 3 minute 40 second mark, there's a quiet, tranquil, brief theme. Then the opening returns to bring the piece to the end. A fast, exhilarating approach is heard to the final chord. So the first piece is eh, mostly pretty light with some darker moments in it. Tracks 4 through 6, the Oboe Sonata, Opus 114, number 2, features Ramon Ortega Cuero on the oboe and Gyutae Ha on the piano. 
So we've changed artists here. The first movement is marked Andante. The oboe starts out with a reedy, lamenting theme, sounding like it's coming from the distant past. The piano accompanies with rather troubled, quiet chords. At the minute and 14 second mark, the piano begins a repeating arch pattern, then settles into repeated chords as the oboe works out its material above. There's a brief subdued section, uh, then those arch-like patterns in the piano return in the third minute for the oboe to sequence a theme over, moving downward as the material repeats. At the 4 minute and 12 second mark, the oboe laments again, accompanied by the arch pattern in the piano, and the movement ends quietly. The second movement, allegro agitato, moving to più lento and then back to the opening tempo, sounds harmonically open in its uh, rising arpeggios in the piano. Then the oboe comes in with an agitated theme over equally agitated repeating piano chords. By the first minute, the theme is energetic in the oboe, as is the bright accompaniment in the piano. This comes to a stop with the break-like chords in the piano at 2 minutes 30 seconds, like slamming on the brakes, after which a gentler theme with a pastoral feel from the oboe due to the reedy sound of the mid-range of the instrument. This continues to a 4 minute and 36 second mark when darker chords start being heard in the piano. The oboe dissipates these and familiar gentle material emerges at 5 minutes and 13 seconds. Towards the 6th minute, the repeating chords in the piano are heard again as the oboe goes back to its dancing energetic melody line. The movement ends on some emphatic piano chords. The third movement starts out largo and moves into various tempos and I'm going to sample the beginning of this movement. Let's hear it. This is kind of uh, nicely spaced out. Those um, opening chords are sound like a sort of religious chorale, and the oboe playing alone drops suddenly to the reedy low end. There are some odd intervals in there. They're pretty uh, nice to hear. Slow repeating piano chords, which is a technique that I have to say Hoyke seems to like. It appears often in the works that we've heard so far, and we'll hear it again. Accompany the oboe in its lamenting melody. There's a kind of um, umpapa, 3-4 rhythm in the fourth minute that dissipates into a more fragmentary theme, which is still in 3-4. The umpapa comes back at 5 minutes and 23 seconds, and we head to the same decrescendoing, slowing theme that ended this section the first time. At the end, we've got the slow, repeating chord pattern in the piano as the oboe spins out its melody, ending on a quiet, rather forlorn note. I have to say that Ramon Ortega Cuero catches these moods beautifully, as did um, Daniela Koch in the first flute sonata. All right, the centerpiece of this album is probably the clarinet sonata. It's different than the others. It's um, more biographical in a way, in that it expresses something about the second pandemic lockdown, which is when all of these pieces were written during the um, COVID years. 
of the last three years, really. The second movement, variations on the song O du Stille Zeit by C. Bresgen, has a video that was brought to Hoyke's attention, uh, which friends of Hoyke's had posted in November 2020, and this inspired him to write this work. It's more dramatic and a bit darker than the other sonatas, and we should just start by sampling the opening. There's something a little unsettling about all of that, the way that uh, begins, and we're kind of in for some a ride here. That high clarinet note and the high piano chord, then the dissonant chords following, then we hear that kind of sort of crooked rhythm, uh, like someone is dragging a dead leg behind them as they walk. Uh, it certainly makes an impression. The section ends with a satisfying low, clear-toned clarinet note. Then the next section begins with a gentle piano chords and some smooth thematic playing on the clarinet. This is in 3-4, but the key signature changes often, and often with new sections. A new, livelier staccato section follows, with some sinister piano crashes and dips by the clarinet into the low end. When this section ends at about the four-minute mark, it sounds like the end of the movement, but there's more. After a long pause, the opening crooked rhythm is revisited, straightened out a bit by the more conjunct melody here. The quieter section that originally follows comes back. The 3-4 section with the staccato theme comes back after that. I'm rather enjoying the clarinet's tone through all of this, especially when it's in its high end, playing staccato in the sixth minute. The movement goes on to a somber solo clarinet line just after the seventh minute. Then the piano and clarinet rather loudly take the movement to its concluding chord. And I really do need to uh, mention the two soloists in this work, Simon or Simon Degen Kolbe on the clarinet and Tobias Haunhorst on the piano. So I really am enjoying uh, Degen Kolbe's playing and uh, characterization of this piece. He's got a lot to uh, dig into here. The second movement, Andante Molto Tranquillo, Variationen über O du Stille Zeit von C. Bresgen. Very pretty, quietly played theme by the clarinet with gently sounding chords toward the high end of the piano. The melody sounds like it's from a traditional song, immediately appealing. The first variation interestingly starts with a rumbling in the piano and a broken up melody in the piano as the clarinet plays a trill. It's very abstract. The clarinet starts playing broken up melodies for variation two, Variation 3 features a carefully played climbing melody in the clarinet with appealing tone as the piano follows, then sprinkles some high-end tones as the clarinet plays fragmentary and appealingly ear-catching figuration. At around the 3 minute and 51 second mark, I rather liked the clarinet stacking itself on top of the piano's chords in an unsteady fashion. A short section follows, then a more scattered staccato section in both piano and clarinet is heard. The theme has really been taken apart and is barely recognizable by this point. It's just the harmony that gives it away. We hear a legato clarinet line in the sixth minute going up into its high end and descending along with the piano chords. A rather forlorn, slow, waltzing variation comes up with light, spacious accompaniment. The movement ends with pianissimo honks from the clarinet in its lower end, accompanied by quiet piano chords. 
The third movement of this four-movement work, this is the only um, sonata on this album with four movements, is marked quasi un minuetto ma con gravità, then più lento, and then back to the opening minuet. This is a rather crooked minuet in its rhythmic figuration and melodic peaks. The whole dance quality of the minuet seems mostly absent. Hearing yet another crooked rhythm makes me wonder what Hoike had in mind with this piece. I mean, I remember that it was for the uh, coronavirus, but it does seem rather sort of broken and sinister. Mm. And um, I I really like to get some clarification on that. I'm very interested. Whatever it is, it's not a happy thing. Anyway, the opening rhythm of the first movement seems to have served as a blueprint to large parts of the entire piece, though there are contrasts, as in the trio section of this minuet, which is played legato and comes across as mysterious. Some interesting harmonies between the clarinet melody and the piano are in there too. Listen from the third minute. At the four minute and 20 second mark, the minuet returns after a long held piano note is allowed to fade and heads to an amusing but solid ending. The fourth and final movement is labeled presto possibile. This has a dotted rhythm Dun, 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 driving this. Both the piano and clarinet stick to it, while the piano also provides a low bass rumble. The rhythm is conveyed in a light, playful way. There are some nice phrases winding down the clarinet and piano's ranges, like the one we hear at around the two-minute mark. In the second minute, we hear an interlude that takes us away from the dotted rhythm into a kind of lightly swirling melody. The piano reintroduces the dotted rhythm, and the clarinet takes it up again. It ends on a repeating note in the dotted rhythm in the clarinet. This is probably the most dissonant work on the recording, but it's still highly appealing. The final uh, sonata on this is the bassoon sonata. Now, this is uh, an instrument that we rarely hear as a solo instrument with a piano, so I was really uh, looking forward to this. It's tracks 11 through 13, opus 114, number 4, and this one features Marceau Lefebvre on the bassoon, and we hear once again Kimiko Imani on the piano. The first movement, Tempo Moderato ma con Maestosità, starts with a rather honking note from the bassoon, followed by quarter notes repeating the same note. The piano leads the melody for a while while we get to hear the appealing very low end of the bassoon, followed by the more lyrical upper range, which Hoike exploits at around the one minute mark. And I think that's where I'm going to start this particular sample. So we're about a minute into the piece when we hear this. Again, these these works, um, you really want to sample a lot more than just 30 seconds because they they go on to really interesting things. Mm. From a minute and 30 seconds, uh, the bassoon works its way into the very low end. The rhythm speeds up a bit in the second minute, and the bassoon and piano trade lines. A very romantic piano accompaniment appears in the third minute, followed by the bassoon playing lyrically. It then quickly switches to staccato for the next section, then the opening is back. Great tone on the bassoon. By the way, so that's um, Marceau Lefebvre on the bassoon. 
The second movement is marked presto leggero, then largo solenne, and then tempo one, and then we hear tempo two again. So a fleet light piano line opens this movement rather unusually. The middle movement is usually a slow movement, and the bassoon sort of sails along with it. The piano has the entire main theme. The rhythm remains for a while, and we seem to even get a repeat of the second part of the opening melody. Then, at a minute and 38 seconds, the Largo section begins. It's a heartfelt legato melody in the bassoon, showing off its lyrical qualities, and this really shows off Mosso Lefebvre's tone. It proceeds very simply to the final cadence, then the opening fleet material is heard again. This section ends again, and at the 3 minute and 45 second mark, we have another slow melody, Largo Solenne again, but this time played low in the bassoon, with more active piano decoration. The bassoon remains in its low end for this section. Tempo 1 is heard again. It ends quietly with a clever juxtaposition of the two tempi. The third movement, Un poco allegro ma non troppo, uh, starts with a menacing trill in both the bassoon and piano at the beginning. Then the piano goes into a ticking rhythm as the bassoon plays a trill-laden staccato theme. It gets handed off to the piano. By the minute and 17 second mark, the tempo speeds up and the trilling bassoon threatens to go off the rails with its trills, but regains the thematic quality. At 2 minutes and 17 seconds, a slower bassoon theme is heard over rising and falling repeated chord patterns in the piano. Beautiful vibrato tone on the bassoon just before the third minute. At 3 minutes and 30 seconds, the bassoon bursts out with an almost brass-like tone. It sounds like the beginning of a fanfare, and uh, then takes a bit of a cadenza. The trills come back in both instruments, followed by quiet two-note staccato patterns. The piece picks up in energy and ends with the piano playing energetic patterns while the bassoon melodizes. The piece seems to die out as it reaches its quiet end. This is a fairly short work, but very playful and enjoyable. Although, not really playful. Maybe menacing in parts. Anyway, all four works have very different emotional profiles, the clarinet sonata having the harshest one, and it makes me wonder whether these works were written with certain personalities in mind, although we do know what the clarinet work was written in mind with. This music is sort of a mingling of the 19th century romantic way with melodic material and 20th century harmony, although Hoike uses it in his own way. There's kind of open-endedness to the harmony at times. It comes across as enjoyable and appealing, with some darkening of harmony for drama. Different sections contrast well with each other, but we often hear sections repeated, and they stick in the ear when they return. The piano gets some good material, but the interest is mainly in the parts of the wind instruments, uh, who get the melodic material. Sometimes the piano is imitating them or leading them, but it often goes into repeated chord accompaniment, making one completely focus on the melodic wind instrument. The piano does get some appealing chords and tones throughout the works, though, but nothing stays around for long in Hoyke's compositions. He also seems to favor the booming, highly reverberant, and overtone-rich, very low notes of the piano, which we hear fairly often, especially in the last two works. One wouldn't necessarily know that the pianists on the recording were all different. They play the material with much the same approach and all have appealing tones. Tobias Haunhorst in the clarinet sonata especially gets to exploit some of the piano's odd or chord and range sounds. The music is all appealing and makes for a good evening of chamber music listening. It's good to hear winds as the solo instruments. Yeah, all the works here have a lot of changes within individual movements, and they're yeah. often set apart by short little pauses by the performers. 
you get to think what you just heard, and then something new takes place. The harmonic progressions are mostly familiar, but they don't let you get settled in for long before a new tonal center <laughs> comes along and <laughs> takes true, you somewhere yeah. else. Uh, there's a lot of varied rhythmic interplay between the instruments and the piano, and also a balance of lyrical qualities and then more rhythmic ideas for each instrument. And I guess most of all, I enjoyed the playfulness and the different techniques on the bassoon, because we don't get to hear that as much as these other woodwinds. All right, and that's it for Classical Tonight. It took a, took a while to get through it, but it was worth it, I think. Over on the jazz side, I've got a sax pack for you, and we're going to go just the way we did with this last woodwind recording. We're going to go top to bottom. We're going to go alto, tenor, berry. Well, there's two things I get most excited about when I check the new releases every day for possibilities for the podcast. Number one is a new release with a musician I really like and I see the name. For example, Dave Kikoski. If Dave yeah. Kikoski plays piano on someone's recording, like the Richard Barata recording we heard recently, I know I'm going to be excited to hear that and it's going to be a good one. I get like that with a lot of the classical recordings too. Like there's a certain musician on them and I really want right. to hear it. Now, the second thing that gets me excited is I come across a name I've never heard before, and the first listen just makes me go, whoa. <laughs> and that's the name of our first recording, whoa. Maybe that should be the name of the podcast. It could be. <laughs> it's a self-release by Connor Stewart, and I had a hard time finding any information about this recording, and luckily... Connor has some information, and he's got the back cover of the recording on his personal Facebook page. Way to go, Connor. Stewart's a multi-instrumentalist. He plays the whole saxophone family, as well as clarinet, keyboards, trumpet, and flute. He's originally from British Columbia, but now he's residing in New Orleans, and this is his debut recording. He's going to be on this recording on the alto sax with all of his original compositions, Along with him is John Michael Bradford on trumpet. He's a New Orleans native who studied with Sean Jones at Berkeley College of Music. And he's got a couple recordings of his own out. We've got Zach Newstub on piano and Mike Clement on guitar, another Canadian in New Orleans. And we've covered one of Mike's recordings, his debut recording, on our episode Summer Strum, and that was number 81. His recording, Unfinished Business, which caught my ear because it was an organ trio, and we really enjoyed that one a lot. So hi again, Mike. And we've got John Lee on bass and Aaron Levinson on drums. The recording starts out with a tune called Blue Memory. When this tune starts, you might think that you've come across an early 60s blue note recording that you've never heard. The melody's made of hard driving, repeating horn riffs, accented by the rhythm section for eight measures, and then breaking into swing for the rest of the 16 measure section with ending drum fills. That repeats, and then there's a contrasting eight measure bridge section ending in a solo break for Bradford's trumpet. And the solos stick to the 32 measure form. Let's check this out.
Wow, that's really happening, man. It sure is, and I really hate to stop it here. Yeah. And that's because one of the highlights of this recording is Bradford's Take No Prisoners approach to trumpet soloing. You can hear the Lee Morgan and Freddie Hubbard influence as trumpet players who took big chances in their solos, but we'll get a sample of his playing later. Let's skip ahead to the searing alto sax solo from Stewart, and hearing this guaranteed I was going to feature this on the episode. That's a pretty generous sample. Yeah, I couldn't stop that one. My <laughs> finger wouldn't go down. <laughs> All right. Anyway, that reminded me a lot of uh, Lou Donaldson's pre-soul jazz recordings from the late 50s into the early 60s there. Well, after that, Newstep gets a hard swinging piano solo too uh, before they run through the melody sections again with a little three-note ending tag. Track two is Del Mar. It's a happy sounding tune. The horn lines work off from a little descending second interval lick over bouncy piano and bass rhythms and then get bouncing themselves with synced rhythm section accents. There's nice splitting off into harmonized lines too. It's an AABA 32 measure melody with contrasting swinging B sections and an extra final four measure section before the solos. Stewart is up first with a swinging solo connecting lines nicely. Bradford follows with a fun trumpet solo with some zippy double time lines and bluesy tastes. And Newstub has a round on piano. John Lee gets a bass solo with some cool bluesy ideas and really clear articulation. And Levinson gets a shot on drums with cool punctuated ringing hits. They go through the melody again to a sudden chilled ending. Track three, I like this title, Bro Hangin'. That's what we're doing here <laughs> on the Adult Music Podcast every week. Oh yeah, that's basically what all podcasters do, I think. It's another fun tune. It's a medium swing, 32 measure, A-A-B-A form. The A section has alternating measures of rising horn lines and bass answers. The B section gets a bit shuffling and bluesy with rhythmic piano under the horns from New Stub. The final section ends with a two measure break over bass for Stewart to start blowing. He's double timing with Art Pepper-like intensity here over the relaxed swing groove into some more snappy rhythmic licks for a great solo. John Lee's next with a melodic bass solo before the final melody run, and he gets the last word in the tune as well. Track 4, Daily Mysteries. Time for a funky one with a bluesy minor repeating horn riff melody. You can hear Mike Clement picking along in unison. It's a 16-measure idea going around twice, so let's check this one out.
funky, funky. Yeah, it kind of had that 1960s uh, groove to it, you know. Well, Stuart Soul's first getting some passionate cries and burning double-time licks, but let's check out Bradford on this one. See, he's letting it hang all out there, but he right. lands like a cat from a couple of dangerous spots, and that's the way to do it, to have a really right. exciting solo. Now, Clement gets a tasty solo next with a warm, clean tone and groovy double stops. This is his only solo on the recording, so let's put it out there to hear a little bit of that from Mike Clement. tasty double stops sounds really good warm clean tone on the guitar there so they go around the melody once more but pull the rug out from us with a sudden ending in the 13th measure of the repeat and it's a cool little surprise to finish up the tune truck five's called our town a medium swinging tune with a 32 measure boppy unison horn line melody with familiar changes Stuart and Bradford both get upbeat solos, and Newstub has a nice swinging piano solo here, and we haven't checked him out yet, so let's check out a piano solo on this tune. that melody one more time with a fun final descending tagline to end the tune. Track six is called Come See, a really slow ballad with a lyrical 20 measure melody of flowing horn lines. Levinson brushes things along. Newstub has a gentle piano solo but builds up some nice rhythmic energy with chords and the horns join in for the final eight measures to take it to a soft landing. Track seven is called Traveling. It's an upbeat tune with riffy horn lines. There's a 16 measure intro with riffy horn lines over fun bouncy bass notes underneath. It changes up 
to more syncopated rhythms under the 32 measure AABA melody sections. And the B section really contrasts, reminding me of Horace Silver or Blue Mitchell tunes from the 60s. It's a nice driving swing for the solos and Stewart goes first. And Bradford has a particularly puckish and exciting solo on this one. Let's check a little bit of this one out. Exciting stuff. You could almost drop the needle like anywhere on this. <laughs> Pretty much. It'll yep. sound great. You'll just get some fantastic uh, stuff coming out of your speakers. For sure. After that, new stuff gets around on the piano too before they give the melody another run through. Track eight's called Pepsi, and new stuff gets it going with a rubato solo piano intro. The bass kicks in on the modulating second eight measure section and it's into tempo with the horns joining in on the end. They go around these sections in tempo again, and it breaks into a solo for Stuart. Let's uh, hear it get going and a little bit of his solo on Pepsi. stuff there yeah after that bradford has a playful and energetic solo then new stub and lee and we haven't heard lee playing yet so let's jump ahead and hear a little bit of his bass solo in this tune because it's one that stuck out to me digging in on the bass there. Well, they take it once more around the short melody and that takes out the tune. Track nine is Consolidation. It's a boppy number with unison horn lines, 32 measure AABA, which sounds like confirmation changes to me. 
Stewart comes out bopping with a great solo, as does Bradford, and then Newstub before another run through the tune. And the final tune, track 10, is I Just Forget Stuff When You're Near. It's a pretty ballad to finish things off. Bradford sits this one out. Stewart gets to show off a bit of an airy tone and vibrato on the 32 measure AABA melody. There's a nice anticipation creating break at the end of the B section. He continues on soloing for the first half of the tune length, coming back to the melody on the B section with an added improvised flourish to take it smoothly to the finish. So a fabulous debut in the hard bop pocket. It's not nostalgic though, but rather fresh and fiery. That's because Stewart and company play with a lot of passion. High energy solos like we remember from the players in the 50s and 60s, and I'll be keeping my ear out for more from Stewart and Bradford. Stewart's tunes are built on familiar frameworks, but have enough fun little twists to surprise you in spots. So put on your hard bop hat and enjoy this one. Oh, I just happen to have a hard bop hat right here. I think I'll uh, put it on now. Yeah, get that on. I think this album is uh, aptly named. It's called Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of what I was saying all the way through. I use the words high energy too, all the way through. Even in the slower tracks, you can kind of hear mm-hmm. this kind of like, almost this contained like excitement. It was really great. The instruments are recorded up front. They sound great. Some thrilling playing as uh, we heard. You had some great uh, samples there. It has the energy of old jazz recordings. Like you actually specified that a bit more than I did. You had, you had the era. I like the way that the themes of a lot of these tracks consist of phrases uh, that come to such satisfying, resolving ends. That's my mm. like classical head going. Think about like traveling track seven. You know, it has a, a nice kind of satisfying ending to the theme too. The handoffs between the trumpet and sax are neat throughout, well executed, and the compositions have warm, appealing themes. There's nothing not to like here. As I said, you could probably drop a, a needle on anywhere on this, and uh, it'll um, sound great. Uh, it gets the blood pumping with its energy. Kind of made me wish I was young again, and then I remember what's going on in the world, and I'm glad I'm 58. But um, <laughs> it's a really happening album. Of course, my complaint is, as always, too short, but, you know, it's a debut. What are you going to say? It was over before I knew it. That was the thing. I was really into it. Anyway, I realize it's self-released, but um, if there's any way to get this on a CD, I'd love to have it. So I'm just putting that out there just in case, you know, maybe Santa Claus will reward me or something. Anyway, incredible production that really serves the playing, too. So, And remember, you heard it first on the Adult Music Podcast. That's right. All right, we're going to take a trip overseas. We're going to go to Italy. Oh, I love Italy. Drop down to the tenor saxophone for Mr. Claudio Giambruno's new recording, Overseas. There you go. That's the title, too. Via Veneto Jazz Label. This came out September 22nd. Giambruno was born in Palermo, Sicily in 1982. He received the academic diploma in jazz saxophone at the Conservatorio e Scarlatti of Palermo and currently serves as saxophonist in the Sicilian Jazz Orchestra. Now, some of the big names he's performed with in recent years in the Italian jazz scene, Flavio Boltroff, Fabrizio Bosso, Max Leonata, and Enrico Pieranunzi. Some of those are luminaries of this podcast, yeah. too. We've talked about them as well. Jump to the international scene. How about these names? Ron Carter, Christian McBride, Dave Holland, John Clayton, John Faddis, Billy Cobham, Gregory Porter, the Manhattan Transfer, David Kikoski, and Diane Shure. It's quite a resume he's got. Yeah. 
Now he says of this album, quote, Overseas is an album of my original songs and some compositions that I chose with great care, where the common denominator is the melody to which I have always attributed a highly significant value. The melody for me is the meaning of the story we tell. He could basically be speaking for Italian culture right there because <laughs> right. they're very melodic people. Keep that in mind <laughs> as we go through and take some sample listens to this recording. Corio Giambruno on tenor sax, Andrea Rea on piano, Dario Roschiglione on double bass, and Amadeo Ariano on drums. We're going to start out with the tune Lose Bounce by Dan Nimmer, who plays piano for Wynton Marsalis, and in the past, and he joined the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra. This one is from his 2007 release on Venus Records, T for Two. This tune has a catchy repeated riff melody in an A-A-B-A form with 16 measure sections. The stop time on the A sections makes it fun and more snappy accented phrases on the B section as well. Right away, you can settle into Giambruno's big warm tenor sax sound. He continues on into a solo swinging hard with nicely connected melodic ideas. There's a little fascinating rhythm quote in there as well. Let's check out a bit of his solo. Really swinging away there. Hmm. Ray is up next, and his solo has a mix of smooth lines, playful rhythmic figures, and exciting two-hand interaction. And Giambruno and Rea trade eights for a round with Ariano on the drums, featuring some exciting tom work before they wrap it up with another run through the melody. An energetic opener. Track two is one of Giambruno's originals, First Time I Heard Hobim. A Brazilian beat, as expected with a title like that, more samba-like than bossa, with a good throbbing bass heartbeat. The rhythm section gives it an eight-measure intro, and Giambruno's melody is flowing and has a longing quality to it. It's 32 measures, nice chord changes, with an attractive modulation midway, and a cool break on the next-to-last measure to set up his solo. Let's hear this one get started. modulation there. Hmm. So you can see his tone is husky, but his phrasing is breezy, which is a nice mix over those tight clicky grooves from Ariano and Roschiglioni's bass pulse. Nice rhythmic chords from Rea too, and Rea's solo is classy with attractive spaces between notes to start, working into smooth lines. Giambruno returns to flow through the melody again with some final phrase repeats to a well-stated ending. Another one of Giambruno's originals for track three, Gauvi. G-O-U-V-Y. Rubato sax phrases to rippling piano and cymbal dances make an intro. 
Ariano gets a speedy beat going on the drums for eight bars to set up Gianbruno to come in on the main melody. It's 32 measures, starting with a stop time section, getting swinging over walking bass, and ending over some more ominous syncopated chords. Gianbruno continues on with a hard swinging solo, nice spaces at the end of phrases to digest what you've just heard. And on this one, Rea has a particularly energetic piano solo, so let's hear some of his piano playing. Sounds like he had a couple of espressos before uh, playing yeah. that tune there. I actually wrote that in my finishing notes. <laughs> <laughs> so Roschiglione gets a rhythmic bass solo with a big fat tone after that, and then Gianbruno returns with some of the melody ideas we heard after the stop time earlier and a new more syncopated final section to finish it up. Nice transformations in this tune. All right, Mike, you're the Italian speaker. Help me out with number four. Yeah, but this really isn't Italian. It's Neapolitan. It's a Neapolitan dialect. This is a Neapolitan song. Na voce, na chitarra, e o poco e luna. This is as close as I can get. All right. <laughs> Despite my family being of Neapolitan oh. descent. Go figure. A uh, voice, a guitar, and a little moon. That's all you need. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, Ugo yeah. Calice, Carlo Alberto Rossi. First released by Teddy Reno in 1954 who I guess is an important figure in uh, Italian music industry, and he's still alive from what I can see. Wow. I listened to a few versions of this tune, including with uh, Teddy Reno playing. You can see it on YouTube. And it seems like it's usually in 4-4, but here they give it a 6-8 feel, uh, set up with a four-measure rhythm section intro. It's a pretty melody and floats nicely in this meter with a wispier kind of tone from Gianbruno. His solo is melodic and breezy to match, Rea shows off a light touch on his piano solo into some ringing chords to bring Gianbruno back with the melody to a lullaby-like ending. Track 5 is another Gianbruno original, C Muse, and this one has an 8-measure ostinato intro of catchy bass and left-hand piano. It's in a 5-8 meter feel with a 1-2-3-1-2 kind of pulse. Gianbruno's legato melody lines contrast with the syncopated bass underneath. It's an A-A-B-A form, but check out how the B section changes up to six beats with an extra measure, making it a 33-measure form in total. Kind of unique. Let's check out how this one gets going.
Yeah, very nice. Switch from five to six, and then that extra measure in the B section lifts it back into the A section. It's a pretty melody too. How about that? You nice. get like really pretty melodies in uh, five. Mm. Well, from there, Giambruno and Rea trade solos over a couple sections of the A melody. They bring back the six-beat B melody section into one more A melody section, and then Giambruno gets to improvise some more over the A pattern before they lighten it up to a sparse ending. A nice sounding tune with some different meter change-ups and structure. Track six, You Make Me Feel Brand New. Ooh, stylistics. The stylistics, I remember them. 1973, yeah. Uh, yeah. The tune's written by Linda Creed and Tom Bell, who was an important writer for that Philadelphia soul sound in the 70s. And he wrote songs and was a producer for Delphonics, Stylistics, and The Spinners, all names we grew up with. Right, yeah. All on Atlantic, too, I think. At least, I think uh, so. I'm not sure, but I know that Spinners were. Well, Jim Bruno and Rea give it a rubato start with a big, warm sax tone over piano. It kicks into tempo with a soft but punchy R&B groove from Ariano. Rea's chords and piano touches are great, and he gets an understated and pretty solo on this one. Let's check out that piano solo. Gian Bruno's solo keeps it breezy and smooth, connecting back to the melody and a nice soft ending. Track 7, Thinkin' Before Swingin', another one of Gian Bruno's original. There's an 8-measure intro setting the mood with repeated dominant chords and a clicky groove. Gian Bruno comes in with the bluesy melody phrases. It's got an interesting construction, sticking on the 1 chord for 8 measures. It goes to the 4 chord and then back in the next section, and the final section gets more movement and an extra two bars bringing it to 26 measures. They go around it again, and then Ruskiglioni is up for a bluesy bass solo. It's a really cool one, and we haven't heard from him yet, so let's check out some of this bass solo. After that, Giambruno has an appropriately funky solo, getting some of that 60s blue note mood. And Rea's piano solo on here has a sublime funkiness to it and a lot of tasty ideas, so pay attention to that. They go through the tune again and vamp out a bit for some final playful sax and piano exchanges and a light ending. 
Track 8 of Vince Guaraldi tune, Ginza Samba, which is originally titled Ginza and first recorded on the Modern Music from San Francisco release in 1956 that had three jazz groups that were relatively unknown at that time. And then you can find the updated title with a new version from All Sides, a collaboration between Guaraldi and guitarist Bolasete released in 1965. Rhea starts it with rhythmic chords, and Rosquiglione gets a throbbing samba bass going for Gian Bruno, who blows the butterfly-like pseudo-oriental melody lines with light agility. It's an <laughs> AABA form with 16 measure sections, and it switches up to a driving swing on the B section. Gian Bruno has an energetic solo over the shifting grooves. Uh, Rhea is charged up too on his solo before they get back to the melody. Rosquiglione is really digging in on the swing sections. Listen to those strings vibrate on the bass. And track nine, Pure Imagination, Leslie Brucus Anthony Newley. It's a song from the 1971 film Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And it was written by these two British composers and sung by Gene Wilder. You probably yeah. saw that when you were a kid like me, didn't you? I did. I think I saw it pretty recently as well, <laughs> a few, just a few years ago. But I did see it originally as a kid on TV. And this one's just a short and sweet ballad treatment as a duo for Gian Bruno and Roscoglioni. Warm and melodic at just over two minutes. And that wraps up the recording. As advertised by Gian Bruno, melody is the key to this collection of tunes. Interesting choices to cover, and they go with his originals to make a balanced program. There are a variety of grooves from swing, Latin, R&B, and funky. The final soft ballad as well. Exciting, but melodic soloing from Gian Bruno. His sound is enjoyable, sometimes full and authoritative, but lighter when the mood calls for it. Very classy piano playing and solos from Rea. It all goes down really smoothly, but there are some tricky meter changes and unique composition points to focus on if you pay attention. An enjoyable recording all the way around. Yeah, I like the uh, warm tone that Gian Bruno got from his sax. He is a very melodic player, as he uh, said. You can really hear his tone in the full in the last track, Pure Imagination, the, the Willy Wonka mm. tune. It's sparsely arranged here with just sax and bass. Um, there's something really inviting about his playing and the ensemble. What it is, I guess, is the melodicism. But it sounds like they're having fun all the way through. The album has great energy throughout, and he also, unsurprisingly, has a way with melody, as we said. I liked how much beauty and feeling he squeezed out of You Make Me Feel Brand New, this very familiar tune. Mm from our childhoods. It's mostly an upbeat album with a few slower tracks. All of them had such positive energy that I wanted to hear more. It's also a fairly short album, but it's enough. I, I enjoyed this. Yeah. So we've yet to be disappointed with Italian jazz just because Italians are so musical. They are musical people, yeah. especially they've gotten kind of, they got their melody back really after mm. the 20th century. You know? Yeah, it's, it's good. good stuff. All right, in our final recording, one that we've both been looking forward to, and it came out, so I decided we'd get it in an episode right away, and we go down to the bottom of that sax pyramid. <laughs> the great trombonist Michael Deese and his new recording on Positone Records' Swing Low just came out September 29th. Michael Deese from Augusta, Georgia, came to New York City in 2001 to become part of the first class of jazz students at the Juilliard Music School. He got both his bachelor's and master's degrees there. And now he's one of the top trombonists in the world with amazing chops and great musical ideas. We've heard him a number of times on the podcast, on Positone recordings, also on Origin label. Uh, however, 
What I didn't know until recently was before choosing the trombone at age 17, he played the saxophone and trumpet. Now, we have heard him on Barry Sex before, and the last time being a blistering Barry battle with Clark Gibson <laughs> on a tune called Boptude on Gibson's Counterclock. That was back in episode 121, a transmusical experience. And now he's making his all Barry Sex debut. So, Michael Deese on baritone saxophone on this recording. Ingrid Jensen, the Canadian trumpet player. Alton Sinclair takes over trombone duties on three tracks of this recording. And we've got that great positone rhythm section, Art Hirohara piano, Boris Kozlov bass, and Rudy Royston on drums. As always, Mark Free, the producer, and Nick O'Toole, the engineer, putting out all these great positone recordings. This was recorded back in February of this year at Acoustic Recording, Brooklyn, New York. Interesting program of tunes. We're going to have a kind of a sandwich with standard bread here, starting out with Dancing in the Dark, Arthur Schwartz tune from the 1931 Broadway review, The Bandwagon. It's a 32-measure melody. Royston rolls it in, and Deese takes the first half, passing it off to Jensen for the second half and adding some little fills on the berry. It's got a halftime feel kind of in the melody, with Royston's hi-hat and Kozlov's half-note bass, but it's chugging with walking bass as Deese breaks into his solo. That fierce berry battle with Gibson was still stuck in my mind as an impression, but here we're getting a new softer side of Deese's berry, more like Jerry Mulligan, melodic and breezy. Jensen follows, starting with low flutters and a warm tone. Sounds more like flugelhorn tone to me. I liked her relaxed phrasing and melodic connection here. Deese is back for some solo trading sections with Jensen, working up to playing together, and they get into more fluttery playfulness. They keep that playful spirit starting to work at the melody, but then improvising together while the rhythm section leaves them to it to finish it on their own. Track two is a Deese original Don't Look Back, Kind of a maiden voyage type groove to start this one out with Hirohara's piano chords on a little intro. Royston has a light, even Latin beat. There's pretty chord changes and breezy harmonized horn lines with appealing weaving lines in sections and nice low berry lines. Let's check out how this one gets started. seems about 26 measures and then the horns sync up more lines and rhythmic syncopated figures over piano improvisations from Hirohara and toms from Royston. These solos first sounding really fluid with a really sweet tone in the higher register so let's fast forward a bit and hear some of that. Thank you. 
A transition with the pulsing horn lines to a solo from Jensen I like her in the warm lower register with smooth lines. Sometimes her upper register, the pitches drift around a little bit, uh, but she seems mm -hmm. to make that kind of part of her style. Deese gets back to the melody, and Jensen weaves in again, working to a nicely harmonized ending together over some ripples from Hirahara. Yeah, I was wondering if she wants that, because she does it more than once. I, was, I thought that was part of her style, mm -hmm. actually. Track three is a tune called Appreciation, written by guitarist Ben Turner. This tune has a smooth flowing melody over a light swing feel. Jensen comes in with the pickups and takes the first round with a cup muted trumpet sound. There's some fun syncopations along the way accented nicely by Hirohata's chords. A nice little break brings Deese in for another run through the melody, starting in unison and then splitting into harmonies with Jensen. He's up first to solo again with snappily swinging phrases over the light groove. And Jensen starts with some nice soft-tongued articulation on her solo on this one and keeps a relaxed feel. Let's check out a bit of her solo. Kozlov gets a bass solo next, backed with cute harmonized horn figures, and after that little break, uh, Dees and Jensen work through the melody into a piano solo for Hirohara with some bouncy ideas and ringing chords. The break and then melody pickup lines take it to a soft ending. Track 4, Phoebe's Revenge, Michael Dees' original tune. They turn up the baba bit for this one. The melody has fun tumbling horn line phrases in an eight measure section over one note bass snap, and then a four measure section with more descending figures over walking bass. We hear that again, and eight plus four equals 12. So when Deese gets soloing its 12 bar blues, he gets to dig in a bit harder on the berry sound. Let's hear how this tune gets started and his solo gets going. that big yeah. tone and aggressive approach there. Jensen has an exciting solo on this one too, working out into harmonic extensions for some cool tension, and Hinohara dazzles with speedy figures, lines, and some cool high rhythmic play. The horns get to punctuate some staccato lines for Royston to have fun on a busy and tight drum solo, coming back with the stabs into a couple times through the melody, and a high squeal from Jensen to finish it. Track 5, Just Waiting, it's a tune by Melba Liston, who was a trombonist, arranger, and composer. Other than those playing in all-female bands, she was the first woman trombonist to play in big bands in the 40s and into the 60s. 
She became better known as an arranger, and she did work with Randy Weston and also Dizzy Gillespie, Billy Holiday, Count Basie as well. This one's a slow ballad, and Hirahara shines on the eight-measure intro under legato horn lines with classy piano playing, so we should check that out to see how it gets going in here. That piano sound we really like a lot. with a huge tone in that old-timey quivering vibrato. It's a pretty 24-measure melody on this tune. Jensen takes the next phrase, and they work it out together like a dance, hitting some nice harmonies on weaving lines. Deese solos first, working with smooth ease up high and low on the horn, all with relaxed phrasing, and Jensen has a smooth one too, sometimes darting into the upper register with fluffy descending lines. Hirohara gets eight measures to shine before the horns flow back with the melody. There's a great ascending harmonized horn line to a pause before the final rubato end. Very tasty. Six, Melancholia by Bill Cunliffe, a pianist we really like. This is from his 1998 recording, Bill Plays Bud on Naxos Jazz Label. Jensen has the harmon mute in for this one, working the moody melody with Dees, a nice relaxed groove. I'd really love to see the written chart for this one because it's got a really tricky meter switch up in there. It starts with a two-beat measure into an eight-measure section, but it sounds like the seventh measure is in 2-4 to me. And then there's sections of six, four, and eight-measure kind of phrases before it repeats without the last section again. Uh, Hirahara has some nice fills going underneath. Jensen solos first, getting some mute mystery and nice double-time lines. And Deese is smooth and speedy on this one, with some satisfyingly low register plunges and fun articulation. They go through the melody sections again, with more piano from Hirahara to enjoy underneath to some final phrase repeats. Track 7, Galapagos, a tune by Rene Rosnes. This is from her 2016 Written in the Rocks recording on Smoke Session Records. And Alton Senkalar joins in on the trombone here and gives us some primordial cries over the rhythm section's open landscape until Hirahara gets an ostinato figure going that's joined by Kozlov. The horns get a rhythmic riff of their own and things evolve quickly into modal changes and some speedy lines. We've got to check out the beginning of this tune. Thank you. 
exciting stuff there. Hirohara's on deck for an exciting rhythmic solo, and Jensen follows, matching that animated mood. They let Deese fly freely over just Royston's drums to roam as he pleases, and Royston continues on soloing, starting softly and then working it up to the return of the ostinato into the horn lines to the rising line climax that we heard before the solo, and that wraps it up. Track 8's called New Blues, it's a Deese original. Royston beats it into an 8-measure intro of some harmonically jarring piano from Hirohara. Deese comes in with the first section of the 32-measure melody. Jensen and Senkalar join in with backing from the 9th measure. The heavy loping groove switches up to more of a swing with a nice horn arrangement midway through with Barry and Bone under longer trumpet lines. Deese is up first for a solo with a sense of harmonic exploration and drive, and Senkalar has a muscular trombone solo with some flights up high and powerful rhythmic phrases. Jensen's fluttery with edgy harmonic choices, and Hirohara gets to ring out a solo under a horn arrangement back into the melody from the horns. A cool final dark groove of a vamp finishes the tune up. Track 9, Up High, Down Low. It's a tune by Virginia McDonald, a clarinetist who we heard together with Deese on The Other Shoe, the music of Greg Hill recording that we liked a lot on Origin Records. Jensen and Deese trade off two measure phrases on the ballady beginning of the tune and work into some harmonized and then unison rhythmic licks as a groove is born beneath in the rhythm section. The pulse dissipates for Deese to start a solo over bass figures from Kozlov and light decorations from Royston and chords from Hirohara. Deese works up intensity as the groove forms again and Hirohara gets to add piano ideas under horn riffs. It returns to the ballad melody horn exchanges from the beginning into improvised exchanges with some half valve touches and some high reaches from Jensen as the rhythmic drive builds up to the end. I like how this tune swells up, drives ahead, and then resets itself several times. You really need a rhythm section with the experience of playing together as much as these guys do to pull that off successfully. Track 10, Julian's tune. Julian Priester, that is. Jazz trombonist. This is from his 1960 recording, Keep Swingin' on Riverside Records. It's time for some boppy fun here with a feature for the interaction of Dees and Senkalar. Jensen sits this one out. Deese starts it out solo with an 8-measure intro, and then Senkalar joins in for the 32-measure melody. And what a great tight arrangement it is. Things switch up to a Latin groove for Senkalar to get soloing, and it's a lot of fun. Let's hear this melody, and Senkalar gets started on his solo. That one keep playing on and on. Yeah. <laughs> well, it shifts back to swing with walking bass as Deese gets his turn. 
and they get some fun new arranged lines building into a bouncy bass solo from Kozlov and then get another run through the melody to wrap it up. And the recording ends with another standard, Embraceable You, George Gershwin's tune, 1928, originally for an unpublished operetta named East is West, but it was published in 1930 and included in that year's Broadway musical Girl Crazy. And it's a duet for Deese and Kozlov, so you'll only need your woofers <laughs> to listen to this tune. <laughs> Deese starts out with 16 measures of the melody and then gets into wonderful melodic improvised ideas. It's got a slow ballad feel at the beginning, but when they get back to the melody, it becomes more rhythmic and... If you imagine in your head, you can think of a cha-cha beat underneath it. And let's just listen to the end of this tune and the end of the recording. has really done it. He's worked out a mature personality on Barry that includes more <laughs> flowing mulligan-like cool phrases, sometimes an old Harry Carney-like vibrato that's atmospheric, and also an exciting and digging-in aggression that we like in his trombone playing. Cool original compositions, as usual, and an interesting and varied program of covers of other jazz musicians' tunes, Sandwiched by a couple of standards, it's a generous program with more than an hour of music. The interplay, harmonized horn lines, and weaving phrases with Jensen's trumpet is charming, and it's all over our favorite rhythm section of Hirohara, Kozlov, and Royston. What will Michael Deese try next? Who knows? Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) I do like him on the trombone, though, so I hope he'll do more of that. For sure. I was impressed by uh, Deese's whole way with the baritone sax. Uh, he seems to know what he what we like about yeah, it because exactly. he was down in the low end a lot, right? There's a lot of low, reedy baritone sax buzz, and I really kind of mm. get off on that. There's what's to you know. You said the same thing. There's an all star lineup on this album for us, right? Uh, Art Hirahara on the uh, playing with the class. We hear him with all, all the other ensembles. Rudy Royston keeping the rhythm exciting and really propulsive hmm. when he plays solos. And Boris Kozlov, you know, our uh, <laughs> most valuable bass player, <laughs> is brilliant as always. And you can really hear his lyricism in full tone on the last track, Embraceable You, which yeah. I really enjoyed. Ingrid Jensen provides quite a bit of contrast on this album, especially when she's soloing. She took a lot of chances, hmm. I thought. I liked her best, I think, when she was um, in duet with um, Deese, because I thought they sounded really good together, like you had said. 
it's great to hear Deese on the Barry Sax, and um, I was just really surprised and uh, intrigued by this. I liked it. Yeah, he's master of two of the coolest instruments around, so. Yeah, that must make him like the coolest guy out there. <laughs> King of the low end, yeah. All right, all exciting stuff there. You can check them out on the Deezer playlist, and we'll have a new playlist up with the next episode's recordings not too long after this gets published. What do you have on deck for Classical next week? I don't know. What do I have on deck for Classical? I know it's a Baroque, a Romantic, and a... Uh... And a contemporary again. Let's see. The Brook is going to be a, a new uh, Locatelli recording by um, interesting pairing. Isabel Faust on the violin, one of the great mm-hmm. violinists out there, and uh, a favorite of the podcast, Il Giardino Armonico with Giovanni Antonini. And whenever you hear Giovanni Antonini's um, name on a project, you know it's going to be not what you expect. Let's say, right. even though you might know the tunes. Now we've been talking about him a lot with those the Haydn series that he's doing, the Haydn Twenty Thirty Two. Mm-hmm. Um, symphony series. So here we hear him back in his Baroque um, guise. Right. We have uh, an album called An Invitation at the Schumann's, which is sort of like an imaginary night out at the, the Schumann's oh. house where a lot of music making is taking Sounds place. And uh, yeah, I thought this was an interesting program. It's also got uh, another violinist that we like, uh, Theotine Langlois de Swart, as part of the Dichter trio on this album. And I've. Uh, a Bulgarian, contemporary Bulgarian composer that I just really learned about today hmm. and decided, oh, let's listen to this because we tend to like uh, Bulgarian composers on this album. So this is really going unheard before I when I programmed it, so I'm not really sure what it's going to be like. Mm-hmm. But that is, let me get her name here because I just learned it today, Dobrinka Tabakova, Tabakova, I don't hmm. know. But uh, we'll see what that's like next week. It's all orchestral works. Oh, cool. And I'm going all trumpet next week. We're going to check out Eddie Henderson, Elder Statesman, on the trumpet with his recording Witness to History. That's on Smoke Session Records. Brad Turner on trumpet and piano on Cellar Live, The Magnificent. And one, I'll tell you that sneaky deezer. I've been waiting for this recording to come out. A trumpet player that we don't hear enough of. Been waiting a couple of years for his new release. That's Jim Rotundi with his quintet. It's on Crisscross Jazz over here. I knew this had been coming out for a few months, and I checked, and it wasn't listed mm. anywhere. Especially, it wasn't listed on Deezer. And today, it suddenly appeared with the original release date of September 29th. But okay, well, <laughs> it's, little... it's not like it was that long ago. So no, still, know. but you know, when yeah. an album comes mm. out that I'm looking for, and then I know, I know that feeling. Yeah, well. they put it up with not the actual date that they had it, but it's available now. Uh, a really great trumpet player that I'm always looking forward to hearing. If you want to find all those recordings together, they'll be on the Deezer playlist. You can go to Deezer, come over to our Facebook page and get a link to it there. As we said, we've got that great interview coming up this week. I should have it out on Thursday. Tony Addison. Tony Addison, yeah. Relentless Pursuit. You definitely want to check that one out. Also, be sure to check out the Same Difference podcast. Link to it at the end of the episode. We'll also have their little promo when we sign off here. Looking forward to going on their podcast sometime in the upcoming month or so. Thanks, as always, to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. Any final words, Mike? Just um, brandy is a delicious alcoholic drink. That's all I want to say. <laughs> I might go have one myself now. <laughs> yeah. It goes well with classical music. I just want to recommend it to you classical listeners out there. Sounds good. If you're still listening. <laughs> so check out that interview with Tony Addison and get those recordings for 
next week's episode. Until then, this has been episode 135 of Adult Music, and we will be with you again soon. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.